Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to our very own Patrice Dutille and his edited book on the life and contributions of Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent. Patrice, thanks so much for joining us today. I want you to tell us how it feels to be the interviewee rather than the interviewer. It feels very nervous, Greg. I, uh, I, I just don't know what you're going to ask, and it makes me very tense. Well, I've never seen you nervous in my life, so this is going to be an interesting experience. So, I have to start with this question. What got you interested in Louis Saint Laurent in the first place? Well, I think like a lot of people, uh, Louis Saint Laurent has always been in the back of my mind. Uh, you know, there are various... Uh, there have been three or four uh, opinion polls uh, among historians and political scientists over the last 25 years about uh, who do you think is the most important prime minister or the most influential prime minister. And Louis Saint-Laurent has always ranked, you know, fifth or sixth or seventh, depending. I, I don't know. I don't know this by heart, but he ranks up there. You know, he's in the he's in the upper quarter, let's say. And I think like a lot of historians, uh, Louis Saint-Laurent assumes a, a vague place in the mind, but, he, but he's there. And four years ago, in, in 2016, I got an email from Ms. Jean Riley, and she'd heard me give a talk, and she wanted to, she wanted to meet with me to talk about a project she had in mind. And so I met with uh, Jean Riley, and she told me that she was the uh, the granddaughter of Louis Saint Laurent, and she wanted to do something. And could I help? Now the timing was good. I had I had a little bit of time in my schedule, and it occurred to me that, you know, I'd already done many edited books, and I said to myself, I know that I'm interested in this, and I strongly suspect that there are a lot of scholars who also would welcome the opportunity to write something about Louis Saint Laurent, and so. I said, okay, I'm going to do something. I'll, I'll, I'll call my friends, see if there are people who uh, might be willing to do that. And lo and behold, Greg, uh, within within a month, I had 15, 16 people involved in the project, including you, of course, because I approached you uh, to write about a topic you knew well, and that was the 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 role of Louis Saint Laurent in the in the evolution of health policy. So it occurred to me that you know a guy like Greg Marshallden could do something on, on on healthcare. Other people could do something on federal provincial relations, um, immigration. Take came up, uh, defense came up, foreign policy came up. All the topics came up, and I was very lucky to attract fantastic scholars to deal with all those aspects. Well, on that point, there are, I guess, two ways to do a biography these days. One of them is to do it entirely on your own. The other is to uh, provide the sort of spine for it like you did in chapter one, uh, but to invite a number of people to uh, speak about the areas they know best uh, or to provide personal reminiscence about the uh, individual. And you've done that in one of the chapters for sure uh, through uh, Louis Saint Laurent's uh, grandchild. But tell me exactly 
uh, what drew you to the idea of the edited biography as opposed to the single author biography? The big problem with Louis Saint Laurent, and you discovered this like everybody else, is that there's no Louis Saint Laurent collection. There's no Saint Louis Saint Laurent archives. I, let me correct that. Of course, there is a collection of Louis Saint Laurent papers, but there is nothing personal in it. There, there are very, very few uh, notes of his hand, from his hand. It's not like he wrote memoirs. There are no written records of his life as a lawyer, uh, of his, of his uh, many speeches when he was not in government. Uh, there's nothing of the man. And so it's very difficult to write a biography of the man if you don't have access to him. Mr. Senna died in, in 1971. And uh, I'm sorry, he died in 1973 and he was 91. He died in 73 and he died and he was 91 years old. Uh, he left no memoirs. We have a book that was published um, just about the time of the uh, 100th anniversary of Confederation in 1967. And it was by Dale Thompson. Dale Thompson knew Louis Saint Laurent. He'd worked as Louis Saint Laurent's uh, secretary. So he, he was able to write a book based on some access to Louis Saint Laurent and to access to personal papers. But he also apparently pruned out those papers and left what has been left to us, which is precious little. So the prod, the idea of writing a biography um, with the ambition of bringing something new to it was really made difficult by the absence of papers. Sorry, can I just comment on, on Dale Thompson, who I met back in about 1991, and I'm not yeah. surprised to hear oh, really? that he pruned the papers. Uh, he was a person with his eye on what I would call the public relations part of the enterprise, and he described mm. his own approach to academic work to me. And it was as much about the sizzle <laughs> as it was about the steak I could, I could see. Yes. And he actually tried to, to tell me how to put forward grants, uh, proposals in a way that they would, their, their chance of success would be much greater. But it was all kind of a, a set of systems that he learned to operate. So I'm not surprised to hear this about Dale Thompson. It's a reality. And so sadly, uh, you know, the, the absence of papers forces us into different kinds of models. And, uh, you know, political biography is not a very hot topic these days. Um, so not a lot of people want to devote themselves to the hard work of piecing together a life. And when you don't have papers, uh, to help you along, uh, I think people just uh, choose other projects. I see. So you you got people to do uh, research on top of research that they had already done on the subject area, but to try to really focus it in on Louis Saint Laurent. That's right. So you're a good example. You're, you've written so much on the evolution of healthcare policy. You are natural to look at um, at, at Louis Saint Laurent and and uh, and healthcare. Uh, I'm just picking off a few names. You know, Mary Janigan had written, uh, had, had done a lot of research on the evolution of federal provincial relations um, under in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, so she was a natural to write a chapter on, um, on one of your favorite subjects, equalization, uh, because equalization was one of Louis Saint Laurent's innovations. 
Uh, I got friends like Luc Bernier and Luc Juillet to write about the evolution of the state under under Louis Saint Laurent. Whitney Lackenbauer, who's a great specialist on the policy in the North, uh, wrote a chapter on Louis Saint Laurent's uh, government's policy uh, in dealing with with the Arctic, and and so on and so forth. It's it's really a matter of of, of uh, hijacking, if I can use that expression. Uh, the, the, the research and talents of particular individuals and then applying them to, to uh, the, the, the project of, of Louis Saint Laurent. Now, Louis Saint Laurent is not one of those prime ministers that most Canadians have uh, strong impressions of. And part of it is the fact that he was also written about and perceived as more of a manager than a leader. Um, I would like you to be our witness to yesterday and take us back to a key moment in the life of St. Laurent so that we would have a much better impression of him as a person. Well, I'll tell you what I think about, and, and I'm borrowing I'm borrowing from Dale Thompson a little bit here. Um, and the date would be December 7th, 1941. And you remember the date, I mean, because it's a date infamous in history, of course, it's the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese. And that's an important date in the life of Louis Saint Laurent because it was at dinner time on that day, he was having dinner with his family. And that is the moment when his life took a very different turn. Louis Saint Laurent had been a lawyer in Quebec City. Uh, all his life, all his working life, and a very successful lawyer. He was a man of prominence. He was very well respected. He was 59 years old, which, you know, in, 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 in 1941 is, is old. Uh, you know, life expectancy when he was born was, was 40. Uh, so in his time and, 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 and day, uh, at age 59, when he was 41, this, this was an elderly gentleman. And he'd been in negotiation with Mackenzie King uh, to join the cabinet. Mackenzie King had lost his attorney general, Ernest Lapointe, in November of 1941. And he was desperately looking for new talent, uh, fresh new talent, could we call it, um, to, to, to restore the, the, uh, the position of the Liberal Party and the Liberal government in Quebec. So he approached Louis Saint-Laurent, and basically Louis Saint-Laurent all through November of 1941, and until Pearl Harbor, resisted. He felt he was too old. He had, he was running a thriving business. Uh, his wife didn't like politics, and, you know, his wife, didn't, Jeanne, Jeanne Renault, had no intention of moving to Ottawa. She, had, she didn't like that kind of life, and he agonized over it. And then he heard about Pearl Harbor, and he had met with Mackenzie King the, the day before, the Saturday before, and couldn't make up his mind. And he made up his mind at dinner time that night on the evening of Sunday the 7th. He was with his family and he said, I've got to do this because the country needs my help. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have to make a sacrifice, but everybody's making a sacrifice. So I'll inform the prime minister. And he did that uh, on Monday and he was sworn in on Tuesday. So for me, that's the big moment. I take it Madame Renault did not really want to make the same sacrifice, though I, she stayed in Quebec City. Is that correct? 
Yeah, she she stayed mostly in Quebec City. Certainly in the early years, she did move in when Prime Minister Saint Laurent moved into Twenty Four Sussex, uh, and that's in nineteen fifty one, I think. Uh, at that point, the uh, the house was more to her liking, I suspect. And you know, and he he really missed his wife, uh, Louis Saint Laurent. Uh, and this was this comes out in, in Dale um, Thompson's book was subject to sometimes to occasional bouts of of melancholy. Uh, he loved his wife very much. He missed her very much. And um, when 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 Twenty Four Sussex finally uh, opened up, um, she she was a much more regular presence in in Ottawa. The Louis Saint Laurent home is still on the Grand Allee in Quebec City. It's a beautiful home. Last time I was there, it was under. Uh, some um, renovations, but it's owned by the government of Canada, and uh, it's a, it was a grand place. I mean, you wouldn't want to leave that place. It was a really beautiful home. So, uh, yeah, but she, she eventually does make it back to Ottawa, and uh, he's much better as a result, I think. <laughs> In your introductory chapter, you talk at length about St. Laurent's contributions to Canada. If you had to pick, what would be the top three contributions that he made to this country that really changed the course of this country? There's so much, there's so much, Greg, uh, to pick from. And that's really, uh, I think the message of the book is that uh, his contributions are so vast that it's very hard to, to pick one or two, but let me do it. Uh, number one, massive investments in infrastructure, uh, massive investments in highways, the St. Lawrence Seaway, pipelines. This really is the hard wiring of the country in the 1950s. Um, putting together and maintaining a fantastic cabinet, uh, bringing people in like his friend Lester Pearson, uh, his friend C.D. Howe. Now these guys were in cabinet before, but he always made sure that they stayed. And I think that level of leadership is underappreciated. People like Paul Martin, Jean Lesage, Jack Pickersgill. These were people who uh, stayed in government, dearly enjoyed serving with Louis Saint-Laurent, respected him immensely, and uh, really were willing to go to bat uh, with him. There's things like equalization, uh, all sorts of social programs that he uh, greenlights in the 1950s. He rethinks our relationship with the Commonwealth. It becomes the Commonwealth of Nations. We have the Queen recognized as the, the leader of the Commonwealth. He brings a new sense of nationhood to our country. He's the one who will insist on our Governor General being a Canadian, and Vincent Massey will be the first one to do that. He's also uh, a, a wartime leader, and I, I think that is the right expression. We don't think of him as that, but uh, Canada does get involved in the Korean War <clears throat> under his leadership, and he oversees a massive buildup of our military. When it had become, you know, undernourished uh, with the 1940s, uh, he brings it back. So, um, you know, the way he, he sought to help the poor, the way he sought to redefine Canada, the way he contributed materially to the infrastructure of our country, this kind of leadership is rare. He served at the right time, but he was the right man at that right time. And I think that for that reason, it's important to remember the qualities of his leadership. 
On the issue of foreign policy, and uh, this is, of course, the uh, one of the more difficult periods of the Cold War, um, was he the right prime minister for this period from Korea on, or did he overreact to the so-called threat of communism, or perhaps underreact to it? What's your view? I think that the policy was right-sized, if I can use that expression. He had the support of Canadians. Uh, he ran for re-election in 1953. The Canadian involvement in the Korean War had just ended, and he was re-elected hands down. I think Canadians appreciated what he did. The war build-up, you know, helped the Canadian economy. This put, this put money in the pockets of workers and managers and companies across the country. You know, it's remarkable, Greg, we forget, but we actually had um, an aircraft carrier. <laughs> Louis Saint Laurent was the last prime minister to commission an aircraft carrier, the uh, HMCS uh, Bonaventure. And it was an operation until the Trudeau government uh, scrapped it in 19, I think it was in 1971. Um, it was that kind of buildup. Let's not forget the Avro Arrow. Uh, Louis Saint Laurent was convinced by the people around him, and he green-lighted it. Um, the idea of having a Canadian jet, a Canadian fighter jet, and he helped to fund the Avro Arrow. Uh, it, of course, we know that it, you know, as fast as it was, it wasn't a very, uh, a very good fighter jet. It didn't have the the uh, the flexibility, uh, the maneuverability uh, that was necessary for a, a war situation, and so. You know, the military didn't ultimately like it, and fair enough, but he invested in it, and out of that investment came a tremendous capacity to contribute to aeronautics and, and really launched a, a small aerospace industry in our country. So it's the, that's that kind of thing that we've, we've, over, that we've forgotten that make Louis Saint Laurent, in his period in the 1950s, really the right guy uh, at the right time. And, you know, we, we, forget, we say, we always, of course, remember that he was defeated in 1957. The government was defeated in 1957 over the pipeline issue. And some people say over the Suez crisis issue. But the reality is that he still won. The Liberal Party still won the suffrage in 1957. They lost because of the mathematics of our, our first-past-the-post system. John Diefenbaker formed the government. But they had still won the popular vote. So I think that Canadians really liked Louis Saint-Laurent. And... Um, I don't think they regretted their vote in his favor. What struck me as so exceptional, though, and you began to put your finger on it, was that the highest spending department, and the greatest rate of growth was in military spending in the Department of National Defense. We never, ever saw an era like that other than in wartime. Uh, and despite uh, all of the infrastructure projects, which would have come under other departments, for the most part, uh, still it was defense spending that went up the most rapidly. And I, I was taken, I, I was really quite shocked by that. It was the Cold War, Greg. We have to remember that. And, you know, there are some ugly parts to the Senegal government. We didn't have the, the Red Scare uh, kind of phenomenon that the Americans uh experienced in the 1950s. But there's no denying that people who are suspected of being, you know, I'm, I'm saying people, I'm talking about public servants, who are suspected of being pro-Soviet or having sensitivities that were, you know, pro-communist, 
uh, were let go. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it, but we don't have very much in terms of data on that. And uh, it was done quietly and, you know, without being apologetic, it was done professionally. People were told, look, it's obvious you don't have much of an allegiance to the country and let's make a deal and, you know, you get out. Uh, it was done in a, in a professional way. I hope I'm not miscasting it when I say that, uh, but we didn't have the excesses of, of, of the American frenzy. Uh, the anti-communist frenzy uh, that that was so present south of the border. Well, one of the most notable episodes, which was a little more public, was the cleaning out of the National Film Board, uh, including some of the se- very senior people in the National Film Board. And there it seemed to be as much their uh, identification with Marxism uh, than any association with a communist party, and so there has been some criticism of absolutely of absolutely. There's no doubt, you know, Greg. They, they, they made mistakes. Every government makes mistakes, and, and I'm not downplaying them. Uh, there was a lot of silliness, and you know, uh, uh, Robson, the, the great uh, opera singer, uh, at one point is denied entry. Uh, you know, he'd been visiting Canada regularly for years, and in 1957, I think. Uh, this this African American singer of, of international repute is suddenly denied permission to come into Canada. Uh, you know, silly, silly, stupid, and it shouldn't have happened. But I I hesitate to tar a government with, with that kind of uh, of silliness. I mean, governments make mistakes, um, and that was an unfortunate one. And there's no excuse for it. Well, let's 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 talk about indigenous policy in that period, because yes. uh, I I know that the contributor on the indigenous chapter yeah, was quite negative uh, about some of the legacy of the Saint Laurent period. Uh, I just want to state, based upon my own research, one positive legacy, which was. For the first time, the federal government, through its shared cost negotiations with the provinces, insisted, and this was the St. Laurent government and uh, both the Prime Minister and Paul Martin Sr., insisted that if provinces were going to receive shared cost funding for universal hospital coverage, that they had to treat all of their Indigenous residents as provincial residents and get to get the same services that all other residents received. And that seems to me to be a very positive legacy, but there were more negative uh, aspects to what occurred uh, in the 1950s. Um, can you try to put this into some kind of a context for us? I asked J.R. Miller, uh, the great historian of residential schools and the author of many excellent books on on the relations between Canada and its indigenous uh, peoples, uh, to write the chapter on this. And I also asked uh, Whitney Lackenbauer, uh, I, I mentioned him already, uh, to look at the relationship between the government of Canada and the Inuit and the Inuk. And uh, it's a different portrait uh, that emerges. J.R. Miller really sees the the... Saint Laurent years as a period of slow evolution. Um, there is a recognition in the Saint Laurent government that residential schools, for example, are not working. And there's a lot of pressure exerted by the government to integrate Indigenous kids into public schools, uh, to let them integrate into the wider society where that is in fact possible. 
So there's a bit of a release in that in that sense. There's a movement to 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 abandon the residential school system because they know it doesn't work. It doesn't work well, and it, it was just not the right kind of policy. Jean Assage uh, becomes the the minister for Northern Affairs, and uh, he brings a new sensitivity to the issue. And this is where we get into some controversial waters. Uh, you may remember that Prime Minister Trudeau uh, issued an apology, I think it's a couple of years ago now, regarding the, the, the Senegal government's treatment of the Inuit with regards to their treatment for tuberculosis. The, the reality was that the government did not feel as though it could provide proper services for the Inuit people up north, and so they brought the Inuit down south. Uh, to, to, to have uh, treatment, to get treatment for their tuberculosis. And the sad reality, of course, is that some people died. And the sadder reality is that, in many cases, the federal government simply neglected to inform their next of kin that uh, the individual had, had passed away. So, you know, silliness on that front. But it's more than silliness. It was, it was ab abject neglect. But the reality is, and this is uh, Lackenbauer's contribution, is that you know there's a lot of thought going into this in the sense that there is a recognition that we cannot simply live leave the Inuit to suffer without treatment. And so the government invests massively to ship the Inuit south to allow them to have treatment, and once they've recovered, to go back home. There is a recognition, and this is a new recognition in the government of Canada, that something had to be done to help these people. And the government needs to be recognized for the effort that it did undertake and successfully undertake. Errors were made. Of course, again, errors were made, terrible errors. But the thrust of the policy was the correct one, which was that you can't let these people suffer without any assistance. So I think that the record, like every administration, starting with John A. MacDonald in 1867. Every administration has had this terrible blind spot when it came to Indigenous affairs, but that, all things considered, the St. Laurent government did, uh, did move forward and did intervene, and that is, I think, to its credit. Louis St. Laurent knew uh, Indigenous people personally. He had um, uh, an Indigenous uh, person uh, as, as one of his personal assistants in his office for the, for the longest time. And, you know, it, it wasn't like it was a foreign reality to him. Um, it mattered to him. And so I think it's important to remember that. What was the, uh, the one thing that, uh, that you could identify that we learned from this book, maybe there's more, that we did not know about St. Laurent before uh, this book was published? And... How does it change existing interpretations of post-war Canadian history? Well, I think, Greg, you, you hinted at it at the, at the outset. We think of Louis Saint-Laurent as somebody who just happened to be there by accident. And, and, and that's simply not the case. Uh, sure, I mean, he, he happened to be in office at a time when there was a great deal of innovation, uh, but he lent his personality to it, he lent his business approach to it, and he lent his leadership to it. I think that what the book portrays is a man of action, a man who had 
very noble ideas about his country and who had the managerial ability to to carry it off so i think the the book's contribution is that you know he's not he's not uh a jersey kaczynski uh character you know in being there uh he he really was an active manager he was a man who did exercise leadership and who made things happen and so I think that's the major contribution. And that's why I call the book The Unexpected Saint Laurent, because we sort of expect Saint Laurent to be there and, you know, to simply uh, smile kindly upon upon the works of his government. No, he, he was actually involved. He knew how to defend his government. He was widely respected in a manner that we can simply not imagine today. Um, it's people people loved Louis Saint Laurent and, and respected him more than they even loved him. Uh, and I think that's that's something that we need to recapture. So let me shift gears here and ask you about the state of political biographies generally. And I want you to compare the quality uh, of the last, let's say, 40 or 50 years of historical biographies of Canadian prime ministers relative to leaders in other countries, in particular prime ministers in the United Kingdom or presidents in the United States. How do we stack up in terms of biography writing? I think we don't, Greg. Um, there are a few exceptions. Um, and, you know, the work of John English, for example, is often cited and rightly so. His biographies of, of Lester Pearson and Pierre Trudeau uh, are outstanding. Uh, you know, we have uh, a couple of really good books on 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 Diefenbaker. Um, we have uh, some some good biographies in on 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 Mackenzie King. They're not great biographies, but they're okay. Uh, but I'm looking at you know I, I quite literally can can name you uh, maybe ten books. Ten good biographies of, of of Canadian prime ministers that have been published over the last 25 years. That's nothing. Compared to what comes out on a regular basis in the UK, I mean, and that's just setting aside the the, the one or two books that come out every week on Winston Churchill. Uh, <laughs> but we're talking about the British prime ministers or, or the American presidency. There's There is no shortage of appetite for the American presidency, even though most books are, quite frankly, repetitious. But at least if you're interested in executive leadership in American government, you are well served by the, by, by, by the, um, by the, the scholarly industry, and more than that, by the pop history, which is quite respectable. I mean, I, I have nothing to say against pop history, as long as it's well written. So we have a long way to go. There is so much that we need to know about our prime ministers, uh, their person personalities do matter. What they bring to light uh, is important about about the state of politics, but also about the state of our nation, because Canadians still, after all, voted for these people. So there must be something that makes them attractive. Uh, I think there's a lot more. I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. And sadly, uh, there aren't a lot of people who are encouraged to do that. I'm hoping that... Um, you know that that people will rediscover the taste for for work on the Canadian executive. I think there's a lot. There are many ministers that we need to know much better, um, but uh, we also need to know more about our prime ministers. And that means that means Greg knowing them again under all their angles, good and bad. 
So let me turn the table on you, Greg Marshallden. I allowed you to publish a, an article, a chapter in this book that takes that takes Louis Saint Laurent to task. You do not agree uh, that uh, Louis Saint Laurent was actually a progressive figure in terms of bringing out hospital insurance. No, that's right. Um, and but I make it very clear that this was an area that he wasn't that interested in. Uh, it wasn't constitutional change. It wasn't foreign policy. Those are the areas that he really managed directly. Uh, when it came to social policy, uh, it was an area that uh, he, in a sense, let others do most of the spade work on. Second of all, I think that he was somewhat um, uh, hostile, and if hostile is too strong a word, is that he was not in sympathy with developments in the welfare state. Uh, and he wanted to take it very slow and gradual. And when it came to the provinces, and this is where I say he was cautious in the negative sense, he actually created an agreement that uh, might never have been implemented by creating the double majority rule in which you would have to have a majority of provinces with a majority of of the population before the federal government would agree to shared cost funding. And as you know, uh, John Diefenbaker, when he was elected in 1957, changed that rule to facilitate the introduction of universal hospital coverage. So it was one area where I feel that, uh, that uh, he was, in fact, quite cautious quite conservative in the old sense, more of a business liberal. Greg, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this this actually points to the reason why we need to know the personalities of our prime minister much better. Louis Saint Laurent was, as I said earlier, a man of a certain generation. He was born in 1882, profoundly Catholic, and profoundly, uh, I think, uh, supportive of the system in Quebec, and to a certain degree in the rest of Canada, which put health care and hospital care in the hands of the church. And I think that he would have he would have greeted any any thrust of modernization in that field as potentially a threat to the authority of the church in managing uh, at a very low cost. <laughs> let's let, let's be blunt about this. At a very low cost, the healthcare infrastructure of our country in terms of hospitals, and so you know his personal conservatism on that front, I think, really informed his his as you say his cautious approach, uh, and I think it defined his approach. You take away that personal prejudice, and you wind up with a Diefenbaker who immediately unblocks unblocks the road. Do you have a sense, Greg, of how Louis Saint Laurent got along with Tommy Douglas, one of your heroes? Well, uh, it's very clear that Douglas was impatient uh, and frustrated and became very angry the moment he discovered the 50-50, uh, the, the, the double majority rule, um, because he didn't see it coming. And when it came, he thought it was a cheap political ploy, number one, number two. 
uh, it reflected the prime minister's desire basically to never see universal hospital coverage introduced. I'm not sure that that last part was actually correct. Uh, I think Louis Saint Laurent might have been prepared to see it be implemented, but uh, was, uh, I think, preferred to uh, see other policies introduced first, and therefore it was sort of, in his view, perhaps a decade too early uh, and wouldn't be done on his watch. But uh, And he was also very worried about the cost. He knew among all of the programs that he was discussing with the provinces and all of the direct financing by the federal government, this could be potentially the most expensive. And in that, he turned out to be correct, of course. Yes, I, I think, and, and you know, his, the Louis Saint Laurent government was spending a lot of money. Uh, you know, there was uh, quite a, uh, a program of poverty reduction introduced under Saint Laurent uh, for, for the elderly, um, he, you know, he, he introduced, uh, pensions for the disabled, for the long-term unemployed. Um, there was, uh, he made, he made, um, pensions universal for people over 70 years of age, uh, and, uh, pensions, uh, could be obtained, uh, for people at, as of age 65, if they were in, in need, if they could demonstrate their need. Um, and last, last but not least, I mean, let's not forget equalization payments, I mean, this came late in his uh, in his uh, administration. It, it finally came out in 1957, just before he was defeated. But that was quite a feat, wasn't it? Coming to some sort of arrangement with the provinces and saying that we will commit to this notion that the federal government will provide monies to the provinces in order to ensure that Canadians, coast to coast, get roughly the same kind of services. I mean, that's kind of revolutionary, isn't it? Well, it was, and it was something that Douglas very much appreciated in his own officials. That is, Douglas's officials worked very closely with St. Laurent's officials in creating equalization. They had been pushing for that for a very long time. So, Yes. So it showed that St. Laurent could be flexible, and even though he could be a little imperious, uh, still recognized that Canada was a confederation. And I think that uh, our friend Michel Beaulieu writes in a, in a very uh, a very nice chapter uh, how regionally sensitive Louis Saint-Laurent really was. In his speeches, he demonstrated a real sensitivity to the fact that you know Canada is a, a country of many regions, and that he had faith that you know some regions are going through a hard patch and they needed support because one day they would they would uh, be prosperous again. So I you know he had a profound sense of Canada that um, made him very attractive. And, and I think, again, uh, that, that garnered for him enormous support. The last thing I want to point out, though, Greg, let's not forget that it was Louis Saint Laurent's government that created the RRSP. <laughs> we forget that, but it's important. It's something, it's like equalization, right? Uh, it's something that we take for granted. Equalization has now been, has been put into our constitution, uh, through the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and, equal, and RSPs are things that uh, many Canadians turn to uh, to ensure their, um, their, their pension when they retire. Well, you've put your finger on something that continues to divide the left from the right, um, public policy and social policy through tax deductions uh, that really help the middle class as opposed to public pensions that uh, that ensure that uh, people are treated uh, equally. 
uh, and that there's consideration given to uh, their means. But I want to thank you so much today, Patrice, for this uh, interview and for allowing yourself to become the interviewee rather than the interviewer. (laughs) Always a pleasure to talk to you, Greg. Thank you. My guest today was Professor Patrice Dutil. I talked to him about his edited book, The Unexpected Louis Saint Laurent, Politics and Policies for a Modern Canada, published by UBC Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes today's press, the UBC Press, the University of Toronto Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 30th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Mm-hmm.